and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Matt O'Brien is here. Matt's going to come up right now. And if uh, many of you may or may not know Matt, um, he is somebody that Hilltop has partnered with and supported him and his wife, Kim, um, from very early on in their ministry with, uh, with crew in Boise, Idaho. And so I'll let him share a little bit more about who he is, but uh, welcome him to the stage. Thank you so much. Yeah, my wife and I have worked with Crew since uh, 1990. So 32 years we've been working with college students, and this church has been a significant part of our ministry, investing in everything we do. I didn't tell this story earlier. I did tell it last time I was here, which some of you may remember this, but I'm 54 years old. I started seminary a year ago, and it was because my kids had all, we'd gotten all of our kids through college, And all of a sudden, an opportunity came where Western Seminary, the professor was coming to Boise once a month, and I can get a master's in applied biblical leadership without ever having to leave Boise. And well, I applied for that, and I got my letter in the mail from Western Seminary, and it said basically this, we're excited to welcome you as a student at Western Seminary. Uh, On the basis of your strong application, you are accepted on a probationary status. (laughs) Do you remember what it was? So they basically said, because of your 2.99 accumulative grade point average in college, you have to have a 3.0, we are allowing you to come into the, the seminary on a probationary status. I'm 53 years old and I am on academic probation. I'm off academic probation. I'm halfway through, thank you very much. Thank you, we'll celebrate little things. So hey, um, about 15 years ago, my wife Kim and I, we moved from Portland, Oregon to Boise, Idaho, where I started leading crew at Boise State University. And right across the street from where we lived in Meridian, Idaho, there was a family that very quickly I understood they were uh, Ukrainian, Russian, Eastern European, European, I wasn't sure exactly what, but th- their, their son was like the, the neighborhood politician. He knew everyone. And, and finally, I'm like, I need to meet this kid's parents. And I meet his parents, and they're, they're very, very, very much immigrants from Eastern Europe. I learned that they were from uh, uh, Moldova, which is very close to uh, where all the conflict is right now in Ukraine. But I learned from the dad that they were strong believers, strong followers of Jesus. Uh, long family history, significant persecution in the USSR. Uh, the, the grandparents and uh, grandfathers who are pastors, serious persecution. This family's faith had been tested. Well, I was invited by the father to come to his oldest son's uh, baptism. So it was probably the most significant cross-cultural experience I've ever had in the United States. 
but I go to the city park that is along the Boise River and uh, hundreds of people, many of the women and more of a traditional head covering and all kinds of languages being spoken. I don't know any of them. I'm sure there was more than just uh, Ukrainian, various languages. Um, but there was eight teenagers that were standing out in the river in these beautiful white robes. They're all probably 15 to 20 feet from one another. Everyone at the same time. It was just a really moving experience to see how they chose to practice baptism. And well, after that event, they moved on from that neighborhood, and Kim and I moved a little bit closer to the university, and we lost touch with the family. But some years later, at Boise State, as a part of crew, we were doing something called an executive and entrepreneurial forum. And here's what it was. We asked three business executives to come to speak to students talk about business, talk about life, talk about what's important. And we invited the presidents and the vice presidents of all of the student organizations, student clubs, fraternities, sororities, and all of the team captains from the athletic teams. And we probably had about 50 people show up. But it was a formal dinner. It's the premier location on campus, up above the Boise State University Stadium, Stickle Sky Center. It was sweet. And what we said to those three business people is, we want to invite all of these students, and we want to invite you to speak, and we want you to pay for it. And they did. Each one of them gave $1,000, and when they stood up to speak, we were able to say that these people have bought your dinner tonight. It was an amazing event, massive amount of work, but an awesome event. Well, we were doing the follow-up. We're getting the contact cards from all the students who had attended, and one of them was Reuben. <laughs> Reuben, the, the, the kid that I had been to his baptism. And I was like, I, I, I scheduled a time to meet with him. I'm like, Reuben, do you remember who I am? Like, we used to be neighbors across the street. I, I mean, I know your dad more than you. And um, he, he basically, as we started talking, if you're at the seminar yesterday, some of you were, we were talking about how to explore and get into people's stories. But I started asking him a lot of explorer types of questions. And what I realized is he said, I'm in the high sciences now. And to be very honest with you, I, d I do not believe that God exists. I was like, whoa, wow, really? That was such a cool event to go to. And I started asking him questions. What was, was there something in your past that kind of brought that about other than your education? And he said, you know, when I was a child, my dad, I asked him, I said, he, he said, I was seeing these pictures of children, many starving children, distended bellies. And he said, I was so troubled by it. And I asked my dad, and like, what do you do with that? Like, how is God in the midst of that? And his dad said, you have to have faith. And I'm like, oh. Oh, that's, a, that's an unfortunate answer. It really, it's what probably many of us would say. It is an unfortunate answer. It's well-intentioned. But in the heart of a young person, what they hear is, when I wrestle with something significantly and I can't make sense of it, what you tell me is that I have to just unlock my skull, take out my brain, set it on the table, and just believe, just have faith. It is not a satisfying answer to a young person. And I understand why it's not. I don't think it's a satisfying act, uh, statement. I think the reality is what a parent is trying to say 
is son, we know God. We've experienced his faithfulness. We know that he is faithful. And when we encounter hard things in life, when we see things like that, we're troubled by them, absolutely. In fact, the scriptures are, are, are full of questions like asking, why God is this happening? And how long will this continue? And I think when parents can empathize with their kids and not just tell them, you have to have faith, it just shuts a young person down. Well, I was talking with Reuben, and I said, man, Reuben, I understand that. And I'm so sorry that that's been your, your experience. I would just tell you, if Jesus is real, you should want him. You would want to be in relationship with him. But if he's not, don't. I mean, if Jesus isn't really God, become flesh. If he's not really the savior, don't waste your time. In fact, if that's true, I should just change my profession. And you and I should get tea times this morning. We should not be gathering for this event. If Jesus is not real, we should not be gathering. But I told him, I think there's reason and evidence. And it's not about blind faith, but I think there's reason for us to believe. Well, two young women, separate event, sometime later, I'm talking with these two women who happened to be behind me in one of the student union buildings. And I just turned around and started talking with them. And, and I told them I'm an advisor for one of the student organizations on campus. I'm a Christian. And, and one of the girls was just really loud, really boisterous. She goes, I got a question for you. Like, really? What's the big deal about Jesus? Like, I don't understand. Why do Christians make such a big deal of him? And I was like, wow, that is an amazing question. That is an amazing question. Why do Christians make such a big deal about Jesus? This is the most significant week of the year for Christians, Holy Week. We are remembering Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and as Christians believe, him raising from the dead. And if he didn't raise from the dead, let's get tea times next week. That one event, Paul says, if Christ has not risen, we're to be pitied above all people. We've sold ourselves for a lie. But if he has risen, we should give our lives to him. Uh, what makes Jesus a big deal? Many people will walk into this week and they will have no idea the significance of this week. And it's not out of a blanket rejection of the message of Christianity. It's that they've never understood what's the big deal about Jesus. Biblical literacy in our culture is really low. And I would say biblical, biblical literacy in the church is low. And uh, to be certain, there are many reasons why young people, many young people are moving away from faith in Jesus. But many of us who work with college students are finding this that young people are leaving the church because they do not find Jesus compelling. They do not find him compelling. There was a day that's recorded in the Bible, a historical account, John chapter nine, where Jesus is walking with his disciples and they come across a man who has been born blind. 
And the, the disciples say to Jesus, tell us, which, which, which is true? Is it because this man sinned or is it because his parents sinned that he was born blind? And Jesus says it was neither. Neither was true. And then Jesus goes on to say these words. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, here's what he did. He bends down, he spits on the ground, he makes some mud from the saliva, then he takes that mud and he applies it to, this, to the man's eyes. Really interesting, kind of odd. Interesting when you read and you see what the miraculous things that Jesus does when he heals people, pay attention to method. There's a reason why he chooses this method. He didn't go around applying mud to everyone's eyes, ears, legs, or whatever. Only time it's, in, it's stated. But the fact that he made mud was something really important because it was the Sabbath and he knew that that would trip people up because you're doing something you shouldn't do on the Sabbath. So he is making mud. And then he says... Uh, to the man after he's put it on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. And one thing, if you've noticed the Bible, the Bible is many times really understated. Like that statement should at least have an exclamation point at the end. Like, he came back seeing. He, this guy who's been blind from birth, he came back seeing. Like, this is an emotional moment. This should be the type of thing that is, uh, well, let me just show you. Let's watch this. <laughs> it's like so close. There you go. We're not right over it. There you go. It's beeping. So now technically your device is on. Can you tell? Oh, that's exciting. Here, you can put it down for a second. Just get used to the sound. <laughs> what does it sound like? I watched this video. I've watched it 30 times, and every time I'm moved to tears. First time, this young woman who has been deaf all of her life, she is able to hear because of a cochlear implant, and she's moved to tears. This is an emotional moment. This is an exclamation point moment. This is a cause for celebration. And this is not merely Jesus saying, now follow this treatment program for the next 12 months. You'll see some improvement if you don't come back to me later. No, this is muscles restored, not progressive. This is not, it'll get better. It is in a moment in time healed. This Jesus is a big deal. He is a big deal. And what happened that day is cause for celebration. And so when people saw him, they would go, wait a minute, is that the guy that used to be, I think that's him. Some would go, no, that's not him. And, and he said, no, 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 that is me. I was the one who couldn't see and now I actually see. And what we see as we read in that story, in that historical account, is we recognize that Jesus did this on the Sabbath which is very problematic for Jesus. Now, it's very intentional. It's not like Jesus going, oh, wow, how did I over... 
is it really Saturday? Like, I'm so sorry. No, it was really intentional why he did it. He did it on a Saturday. He did it on the Sabbath. The Pharisees and the religious leaders conclude this man, Jesus, cannot be from God because if he was, he would not do this on the Sabbath. He wouldn't do this on the Sabbath. And the leaders, they call his parents and they say, we need to get some information from you. Tell us, is this your son? They say, yeah, that's our son. And they say, was he born blind? And they go, yes, he was born blind. And they say, how does he now see? And they say, you're going to have to ask him yourself. We don't know. And it says after that, it is because they, were, they feared, because it had been well known that if you do anything to attribute belief or trust in Jesus, you would be cast out of the community of the Jewish faith, out of the synagogue. The religious leaders were holding and wielding power. And I think if you don't like some of the injustice you see in churches and with religious people, Jesus is right there with you. Religious leaders who wield power inappropriately, Jesus is totally responding to that. They ask, they threaten the man, and they cast him out of the synagogue. He's actually cast out of the, out of the, the community of people. And it says, when Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? So Jesus earlier says, I'm the light of the world. Now he says, I'm the son of man. This man says, well, who is he that I may believe in him? Jesus answered, you have seen him. Not an understatement. Your eyes actually work. You have seen him with your own eyes. You have seen him. In fact, he is, he, he is the one who is speaking with you. And his response was, I believe, Lord. And then he worshiped him. Again, the Bible is incredibly understated. To say he worshiped him is kind of like this, what? Like, really? Like, why would you worship another person? Especially in the Jewish community, one, you, you worship one person, and that is God who created everything. And worship of anyone else was expressly forbidden. And you know what Jesus did when the man worshiped him? He received it. He welcomed it. That is an appropriate response to what had just happened. So summarize this. Think about this. This seems like it should have been a glorious day, a celebration for this man and his family. The light of the world brings light and sight to a man who has been born blind. The son of man receives worship, and a man receives his sight, and unfortunately, he loses his place in the community on a day that should be the most exciting day of his life at that point. Jesus is the light of the world. Light reveals, and these religious leaders are shown to be, when exposed to light, they are shown to be the ones who are actually blind. You cannot read that passage. You cannot read that historical account and not find Jesus absolutely compelling. This is an emotional passage, absolutely compelling. The light of the world, the son of man. Well, immediately after this, Jesus makes these statements. He says, I am the gate. That's weird. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. 
So light of the world, he called himself the son of man. Now he's saying the gate through which anyone enters will be saved. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. And it's like, what is he doing? Like for, for many of us who've been around Christianity for a while, we read that and it's like, that's understandable. He's calling himself the good shepherd. But for many of us who don't understand this, it's like, why would he say in this circumstance, why would he say, I'm the good shepherd? Like, why would he not say, I'm the, I'm the uh, happy train conductor? Or I'm the jolly postman? In this setting, where a man is treated so harshly by the religious leaders, does he say, I am the good shepherd? Now, Jewish people, especially the Pharisees, are people of the word. They know and have memorized huge portions of scripture. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I think their minds are going, wow. You, wait, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, wait a minute, Ezekiel 34, you, you're the good shepherd? Like, are you serious? You think you're the good shepherd? That's big. That is really big. That is really bold. So in your handout, I have provided for you the entire passage from Ezekiel 34. We're going to look at this because I think this had to be one of the passages that the original hearers, when they hear Jesus say, I am the good shepherd, they're thinking this. And so I'm going to ask you, if you have a pen, I'm going to ask you to circle certain things, pay attention to certain things. Um, but what I want you to maybe understand initially is this is written about 580 years prior to the time that Jesus is walking with his disciples. 580 years before, these words were spoken to and through a man by the name of Ezekiel, spoken by God. And the, originally, this is written in Hebrew. So we're looking at an English translation. Uh, that's an important thing to understand. But you need to probably view this as, this is a lot like what's happening in Ukraine right now. Think about the pictures that we're seeing right now coming out of Ukraine. One country invades another country, decimates this country. The cities in Jerusalem says the temple has been destroyed. The, the walls around the city have been destroyed. And people have been taken from Jerusalem and Israel and they've been taken to Babylon, the conquering country. So when you think about what's going on here, this is what has happened just before to the Israelite people. They have experienced incredible difficulty. And it says at the start of the book of Ezekiel that Ezekiel says basically, when I heard this from the Lord or I received this from the Lord while I was sitting on the Kibar Canal. It's a canal in Babylon. Here you have the prophet of God sitting as an exile, as a captive, as a person who's been driven from his land in uh, in Babylon. So are you ready to do some quick reading, fast business? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through an entire chapter. But I'm going to encourage you to pay attention to certain things. The first thing, Ezekiel 34, verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to me. And when you see always capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's translated in English, Lord, but what that actually means, it's the proper name of God. So it is Yahweh. Whenever you see that, it's Yahweh. 
And, and Jewish people very appropriately have huge respect for the name Yahweh. They never actually say it. I say it with the absolute utmost respect that this is the God who has revealed himself to us and he has said his name is Yahweh. So the word of, the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to me and these are the words, son of man, he speaks to him, uh, son of a human, you're a human, speak to, to speak or prophesy, prophesy, and here's who you're to speak against, the shepherds of Israel. Speak against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God, when those two words are together like that, it's, it means this is what Adonai Yahweh says. Adonai Yahweh. This is what Adonai Yahweh says to whom? To the shepherds, the political leaders, probably some of the religious leaders. And he says, woe to you shepherds of Israel. You've been feeding yourselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat. You wear the wool and, the butch, and you butcher the fattened animals. But you do not tend the flock. I would circle every time you see the, the word you right now. Because God is making, it is like, you don't do this. You don't do this. You don't do this. You do this and you do this, but you don't do this. So verse four, you have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. You get a picture of why Jesus might be saying, I'm the good shepherd in the context of a man who has been mistreated by the shepherds of Israel. Those are bad shepherds. I'm the good shepherd. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. Here you get a picture. This is the picture of Israel at this moment. A flock of sheep that are completely scattered. That's the image that should be in your mind. It's repeated several times here. My flock, I'm sorry, they were scattered for a lack of shepherd. They became food for all the wild animals when they were scattered. My flock went astray on all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the face of the earth. They're sitting in Babylon. And there was no one searching or seeking for them. Therefore, you shepherds, circle you, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord Yahweh, I'm sorry, of Adonai Yahweh. Because my flock, lacking a shepherd, has become prey and food for every wild animal. And because my shepherds do not search for my flock, and because the shepherds feed themselves rather than my flock, therefore you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. This is, what the, this is what Adonai Yahweh says, look. Now, change the, the, the pronoun changes from you speaking to the shepherds to I, God speaking about himself. I am against the shepherds. Can you imagine a more chilling statement than the God who has created everything we see, the, the, the one who has created humans and breathed life into them, he says, I am against you, you shepherds. I will demand my flock from them and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves for I will rescue my flock from their mouths. Crazy thing that you got to rescue sheep from their shepherds so that they will not be food for them. 
For this is what the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh says, see, I, circle, myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and total darkness. I will bring them out, of the peop- out from the peoples, gather them from the countries and bring them. You get this perspective of they are scattered at this moment, but, but, but what God says is, I will bring them, I will gather them, and they will be brought back. And that's what God is going to do as shepherd. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries and bring them to their own soil. I will shepherd them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will tend them in good pasture. Who is I? Adonai Yahweh. And their grazing place will be on Israel's lofty mountains. There they will lie down in a good grazing place. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of Adonai Yahweh. I will seek the lost. Listen to these words. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strays, bandage the injured, and strengthen the weak. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will shepherd them with justice. Oh, bless God. Oh, that justice would, be, would reign in, the, in, in humanity. As for you, my flock. So now all of a sudden, he's speaking to the shepherds first. Then he says, I, I will do these things. Now he points his attention to the flock. These are the people of Israel. As for you, my flock. So I would circle every cir- circumstance of the, of the word you. But he says, as for you, my flock, Adonai Yahweh says this. Look. I'm going to judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the goats. Isn't it enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of the pasture with your feet? Or isn't it enough that you drink the clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Yet my flock has to feed on what your feet have trampled and drink what your feet have muddied. Therefore, this is what Adonai Yahweh says to them. Who's he speaking to? The flock, specifically the fat. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Since you have pushed with flank and shoulder and you butt the weak ones with your horns until, here's the result, they're scattered. They're scattered all over. I will save my flock. They will no longer be prey and I will judge between one sheep and another and I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. There's a difference of opinion on what this means. It could, some people just believe that David is representative. That David lived prior to this time and he's dead at this point. Um, but some people actually believe that, that God may bring David back to, to reign in a future sense. At minimum, Jesus is of the line of David, and it seems like Jesus as Messiah is to shepherd over them. But he says, he, now wait, who's going to be the shepherd? I myself will shepherd the people, but he, he will tend them himself and be their shepherd. I, 
Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So some of this is probably present in the day when Jesus is coming. Behold, the kingdom of God is here. Much of this is probably future in the life to come when we live together, those who know Jesus as rescuer and savior in the life to come. But he says, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate dangerous creatures from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the forest. I will make them and the area around my hill will be a blessing. I will send down showers in their season. They will be showers of blessing. The trees of the field will yield their fruit and the land will, produce its, will yield its produce. My flock will be secure in their land, not scattered any longer. They will be secure. They will know, and this, this statement is made 63 times in the book of Ezekiel. It's like a repeated statement. They will know that I am the Lord Yahweh. When I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the power of those who enslave them, they will no longer be prey for the nations and the wild creatures of the earth will not consume them. They will live securely and no one will frighten them. I will establish for them a place renowned for its agriculture and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land. They will no longer endure the insults of the nations. Then, here's the result, they will know that I am Yahweh, their God. I, I will know, they will know that I am with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people. This is the declaration of Adonai Yahweh. You are my flock, the human flock of my pasture, and I am your God. This is the declaration of Adonai Yahweh. Why in this moment, when Jesus sees this injustice of religious leaders who take what should be the most celebrated day in a man's life and they say, you are out of here because you, give, you attribute allegiance to Jesus. I'm the good shepherd, he goes on to say. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A little bit further, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. You lay down, you're gonna die? This is why the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the right to lay it down and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command. From my father. This Jesus is absolutely compelling. I guess I don't know that I necessarily say this about men, but he's beautiful. And if you and I don't find him compelling, it's not because he himself is not compelling. I think the deficiency is in us. This Jesus is absolutely compelling. For those of us who embrace Jesus as our Lord, the one who has rescued us, this week. Let's worship him deeply. Let's worship him deeply, remembering that he was welcomed into Jerusalem with the words, Hosanna, Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And later in the week, the cries turned to crucify him. Crucify him. He was taken. He was beaten mercilessly. He was taunted. He was made to carry his own cross, nailed to a cross where he suffered a painful and humiliating death. Yet no one took his life from him. No one took his life from him. He laid it down on his own initiative.
he was buried. And on Sunday morning, he took up his life again. He took up his life, understated statement of the year. And he now lives and he is your peace if you know him. He is your peace. Let us worship him this week deeply. I would say though, that some of you have, like me, I was, through most of my growing up years until I hit college, I had never understood the compelling story of Jesus. If you've never embraced Jesus as your rescuer, he is compelling, he's beautiful, he is worthy of your life. He's the light of the world. He's the son of man who receives worship. And he is the good shepherd who tends his flock, seeks the lost, brings back those who have strayed, bandages the injured, he strengthens the weak, he shepherds with absolute justice. He's worthy of your lives. He is worthy of your lives. And if you and I do not find him compelling today, the problem is not with Jesus. It is in how you understand and view him. Let's pray. Father, we worship you because you have sent your son, God who took on human flesh. He dwelt among us. We worship you because you tell us that you will tend your flock. Thank you that for those of us who live life in relationship with Jesus, we are a part of your flock. We thank you that you have sought us when we were lost, that you've brought us back when we have strayed. We thank you that you bandage us when, you, when we are injured. We thank you that you strengthen us because we are incredibly weak. We thank you that you shepherd with justice. And for that, we worship you in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.